All right, so we only have this much of the Old Testament left. It's really literally like 20 pages since we're in Micah, but we have Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So we have six weeks to get through that little bitty section of the Bible, and we had, you know, one week to get through Daniel. So, uh, but the whole point of this is an overview, and so tonight we find ourselves in the book of Micah. Micah, there is no narrative in Micah. It is just his sermon, or sermons. He he ministered for about 20 to 25 years, from 750 B.C. uh, all the way up to 715 B.C. We, during his ministry, uh, in 701 B.C., Judah, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 722 B.C., um, the northern kingdom fell and was taken off. Uh, Jerusalem almost fell in 701, and you can read about that in 2 Kings 18 through 20. Um, Micah, like many prophets, tends to go back and forth, if you read it, between a blessing and a curse. The standard prophetic utterance is either for a wheel, which is a blessing, or a woe. We see Jesus, when he is speaking prophetically, would say the same thing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those uh, who are poor in spirit. And so that prophetic way of going from this is God's judgment for these behaviors and then shifting gears into God has a plan. He knows what he's doing. Rest in him is the way that the book of Micah runs. Micah starts out, uh, and he literally, uh, in verse 3-8, says he is bringing God's lawsuit against his own people. He hammers Samaria and Jerusalem for their sin and says that both Assyria and Babylon are being used by God to punish them. God often in the Old Testament would use outside sources to punish his people. He cares more about their holiness than he does about their happiness. He cares more that they're focused on him and they're doing what he commanded them to do than their external circumstances to the point of taking them off into Babylonian captivity. Let me read part of the indictment that, that Micah brings, in, which are, is in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. And the reason why I want to read this is because it felt really familiar to me. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who built Zion with blood in Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophetic prophets practice divination for money. And yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. 
I want, us to, I want you to think about why that I say this feels familiar. One is there, God speaks out against those who make crooked all that is straight. For 2,000 years, the theology of the New Testament has been accepted in the church. There's been no question about what we believe. In the mid-1800s, there was a movement in Germany where theologians started looking at, trying to look at the Bible through a lens of, well, that's not our experience. We don't see miracles happening the way the Bible describes them. And so God probably didn't work that way. Those are probably stories that we're uh, we're supposed to try to see what the allegory of that is. And so, and from that movement forward, what ended up happening was, is you had these downgrades. Do you realize that Harvard was started as a school to teach preachers? And then when it had gotten so liberal that the preachers that were coming out of it were uh, worthless, then some people got together and started a new college to teach preachers, and it's called Yale. And then after Yale got so liberal that the people coming out of it, the preachers were worthless, then a group of divines got together at a college that was already existing and started a divinity school. And that was Princeton. And the Princeton Divinity School, for a solid century, put out some of the best theologians there were. And then it declined and degraded. People want to take stories that are super easy to understand and take something that's straight and make it crooked. I mean, you read a story about when I went to a Baptist university. I had my New Testament teacher at a university right here in the state of Alabama who stood in front of all the students and said, that the real miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, it was a miracle of sharing. What Jesus did was he convinced everybody to share their meals with each other. Now that's, I guess, a good sounding story, but you can't believe that and then read what's very clearly written in the book. Nobody had any food. A little boy had his lunchbox. Jesus took the little boy's lunchbox and fed 5,000 people. There's no ambiguity in the story. We saw the same thing last week in Jonah. There's no doubt what the story says. He was thrown in the water. A fish came and ate him. Was it a whale or was it a fish? Well, it says a fish, but I I could bet that Jonah wouldn't have known that a whale was not a fish, but it's a different thing. So it could have been a whale. Didn't matter. It didn't matter to Jonah when he was inside of it. And so why do we have people who who try to say this is an allegory? Why? Because they can't believe that God says what he says. Because if we believe that what he says there is true, then we have to start believing when he says, this is how you're supposed to treat your enemies. The people that you don't like, how you're supposed to treat them is you're supposed to love them. Do good to them. Bless them. And so we don't want God to be able to place demands on our life, so we don't believe the things that he says. And so just as in Micah's day, people were 
making straight paths crooked and confusing people and throwing people off the paths, we see that government leaders were giving judgments and they were making decisions based on money. Priests taught for a price. Now, I believe completely and totally that a church should pay their pastor. Please continue to do that. There are men that I have had great respect for, love their books, love watching them preach, until I read their contracts for what they charged to speak. And the green room agreement that they demanded that if they came to your church or to your coliseum to speak, what they demanded you to do for them and what kind of hotels they would only stay at and what kind of vehicle they would only ride from the hotel to the church in. And as I read that we will not consider a facility that seats under 1,200 and to discuss speaking with your church, you've got to write a check for $10,000. You're not a preacher, my friend. You're a prostitute. And so here, Micah says, priests won't teach unless there's a check. They won't teach unless there's money. What else? The prophets will make their prophecies for a check. And then he says, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. How many preachers, if you turn on the television or speakers, will tell you, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. God loves you. God is love. I see very little. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That God gets to make claims on the way that we act. No, it's, that's not going to sell books. What sells a book is it's going to be okay. You just need to claim it in Jesus' name, and you'll have whatever you want. I saw, uh, and I haven't seen this commercial since the 80s, I was, and it may have been because I was watching uh, Blue Bloods, so people who were kind of around in the 80s or people who trend to watch that, but I saw the pop-off guy selling the holy water. And, you know, you, you send him $25, and he sends you the holy water, and it's got all the testimonials. Well, I just got a check for $30,000. Woo, praise the Lord. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this. How has God not struck that guy dead yet? But we want to hear that everything's going to be okay. And sometimes it's not. And so that's what the prophetic utterance that Micah is saying, hey, hey, these people have perverted God's way. They're claiming, they're leaning on, oh, thus says the Lord. And because of those things, I'm about to use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to teach you. And then Micah uh, lists out the sins. The sins are idolatry, the illegal seizure of property, just like, uh, in fact, Micah likes to say the sin of Ahaz. Uh, Ahaz. Hey, I like that property, so I'm going to just take it because I'm in leadership. I like that uh, vineyard. Religious leadership, prophetic leadership, offering sacrifices without truly repenting, 
and corrupt business practices and violence. The themes that we see throughout the book of Micah is that the Lord's character and the people's sin demand justice. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, what happens outside of the church isn't really my business, but what happens in the church God has sent me to deal with. And so too often in the last few years, it seems like we as a Christian body, not we North Linco, but we as a Christian body have focused on what the world is doing, and yet we've let sin run rampant in our midst. We point our finger at the sins that we're not, convict, that we're not tempted with and forget that in the same list of homosexuality and drunkenness, Paul lists gossip and backbiting. And God cares more about what we who claim his name do as we represent him. And so Micah drives that point home. And then Micah turns and in 2, 12 through 13, 4, 6 through 8, 7, 14, and 16 says, a shepherd king is coming to deliver his people. In fact, one of the great One of the themes throughout Micah is someone is coming. Micah would have had access to the same 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings that we have. And I, I, David is one of my favorite characters of the Bible. In fact, if you go in my office, I have uh, a drawing, uh, a painting, uh, print of a painting, I don't have the painting, but uh, that I found in a Bible, and then I uh, was saying how awesome that I thought it was, but it's just a picture of David, a drawing of David and his mighty men, and they're standing there, uh, you know, as if someone was taking a photo. It's like a photo, and they all look like people who would be warriors. It's one of the few pictures I've seen that I'm like, those guys would go walking into a village and take it, and I, I love it because it's just so human, and the stories that we read about David you just read about him, and one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story where David um, is talking, and he said, just running his mouth, he goes, man, what I would give for some water from the well in my hometown, and those mighty men hear him say that. They love David, and so what do they do? They go fight their way through the Philistines to the well, go back to back as they're fighting people off and somebody draws the water and they bring David a cup of water from that well. They fought their way to the well and fought their way out. And David's sitting here holding this cup of water and says, I can't drink this, you risk your life. It would be like drinking your blood, I can't do it. And so he poured it out before the Lord as a drink offering. And so I read about his character, and I read about the character of the people that he's surrounded with. And then, as we studied in the, from the pulpit, the story in, in uh, 2 Samuel, we read how David does this right and this right, and he dealt with external conflict correctly, and he dealt with honor, and he dealt with justice, and then he dealt with internal issues biblically and with justice and with honor, and then just almost seemingly out of nowhere, starting with not being where the kings are supposed to be to fight, we see him not just have an affair, but have an affair and risk his men, the same men that fought back to back to get him water. 
I mean, we read the story of Bathsheba and forget that Bathsheba's dad was one of his mighty men and her husband was one of his mighty men. This wasn't just some guy who he kind of knew. These were men that he had fought with, that he had loved, that he stabbed in the back for self-gratification. And then he risked lots of men by taking one of his best soldiers off the field so that he could try to finagle a cover-up and then sent him back and put his general in complicity with his sin up until he, Nathan the prophet came to him and said, remember if you recall, and said, you were the man. And God dealt with, with the sin. The reason why Micah knows that king after king after king after king, none of them were fitting to hold the throne of God. They all were failures. Solomon started out as the wisest man who's ever lived. And by his deathbed, he's a man who's building altars to false gods to pacify his girlfriends. And then it, after, after Solomon, it's like every king we read, and he was more wicked than his father's. Periodically, God's Spirit would come and convict, and you would have kings like Josiah that would repent and turn, but their sons would be following after the sin of Jeroboam, sacrificing in the high places. So Micah knows that when he tells these people that a king is coming, that may not be good news. And yet he paints the picture of this shepherd king who not only will come, but he will be victorious. The nations around Israel will no longer raise their arm against Israel. And not only that, Micah goes on to describe, and this is where we, in the Bible, we get that, that he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. This king is coming who will literally abolish conflict. Nobody's got to train for war anymore. Everybody can sit in their backyard and plant some muscadines and raise a dog. Life is good under this kingship. This is not a king who's taken bribes. This is not a king who has crazy judgment. This is a king who's king of kings and lord of lords, and he's coming. In fact, Micah goes on to say in a few chapters later, in the midst of warning them that God is about to judge them, he says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So in the midst of his warning, he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is of old from ancient days. And so he predicts where the king is going to be born. And we know that when the wise men from the east came and said, hey, we're coming to worship the king. And Herod's like, 
Okay, so you go worship him, and then come back and let me know how that went. And then he had to grab people and go, where does it say he's going to be born? And they went to this text. Up, oh, He's coming from a city called Bethlehem. The house of bread is what Bethlehem literally means. And so you would think, as he's described injustice, which is one of the themes of Micah, that what he's expecting of his people is huge changes, right? But he makes it really simple. In chapter 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What is God asking of his people? And then he asks, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oils? Is God asking his people to do some magnanimous sacrifice, rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God still requires of people today. Do justice. Just treat people the way you want to be treated. Love kindness. And walk humbly with your God. You know, Jesus said just about the same thing in Matthew chapter 23, in verses 23 and 25. In verse uh, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. God is calling us God is calling his people to show love, show kindness, do justice, and walk humbly with their God. Same, about the same time as Jesus would have been about 10 years old, there was a rabbi in Jerusalem. His name was Hillel. Uh, he was born in Babylon oddly enough, and then came to Jerusalem about 70 B.C., um, and he worked very closely with the movement that in Jesus' time would have perverted itself into the Pharisees. And he said that what God required of his people was this. That which is hateful to you, don't do to someone else. Things that you don't want to happen to you, don't do them to other people. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Jesus would repeat that. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look at the sins that Micah calls out, all of them would be traced back to not treating our neighbor the way we want to be treated, not acting justly, not being kind, 
I feel like the, the, on repeat in my house. Will you please be kind to your sister? And so, as we go to serve our king, love justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Go serve your king.